Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. God, we thank you for a beautiful day outside, sunlight, and for a good week. And Lord, I just thank you for your word. Lord, as we go back to the letter to Timothy, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes, help us to think, and to be informed by you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Yeah, I recommend fasts. They're very, obviously... Jesus didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. Which means, guess what? We should be fasting. The early church, uh, almost as a rule, fasted one day a week, a full day. Usually, I don't remember if it was Tuesdays or Wednesdays. I think it was Wednesdays. That they just that they would always fast Wednesdays. And then later on in church history, it became, you know, Friday was the fast day. And still now, and uh, you know we're we're moving in a couple months towards Lent, which is several weeks of fasting, but specifically, um, like a lot of church traditions will take Fridays of Lent to fast either one particular food or everything on that day. Um, and then oftentimes people will fast something specific for the entire season of Lent. So, like chocolate or... Uh, I would like to fast working. Can I fast working? <laughs> That's cool. Hey, that is, that is a fast. It's called the Sabbath. The fast of work. And uh, Jesus... I, I still think Sabbath is a good idea, although not in the same way that uh, the early Jewish people did. Okay, so, all right, where were we? I think we got through verse two <laughs> last time. We did read it all, which is good. Uh, no, we only got through verse one. That's, <laughs> that was really it, because then we went talking about power and Christian use of power and what it looks like to inhabit power in a Christ-like way. Truly, honestly, one of the most important conversations happening in, in not just the church world, but our culture as a whole right now is around this issue of power. There's a whole lot to say. The church, or rather Jesus has a whole lot to say about that issue. And I think the church is getting it majorly wrong in a lot of parts of the church. Not that I'm getting it right all the time. I know that I'm not. But um, at least I know that I'm not. <laughs> Whereas a lot of the church 
has no grid for this conversation at all. No understanding that as Jesus people, we have a whole lot to say about this because Jesus showed us how power was supposed to be used. But let's move beyond that. All right, we'll start with verse two. Um, he's been talking about, uh, you know, be careful of these people who are teaching deceitful things, doctrines of demons, etc. And then he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What does it mean for your conscience to be seared? Well, you would sear a cut. Burn is correct in a way. But for your conscience to be seared, what does that mean? Anybody? The idea is that you have so abused your conscience that it no longer functions. You no longer feel bad about doing wrong things. And not only that, you're no longer able to tell if and when you're doing wrong things. It comes from repetitively ignoring the Holy Spirit to the point where we can no longer hear his voice. That is a scary, scary, scary thing to think about. This is my, the way that I think about what Jesus says about the unforgivable sin. Anybody with me, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Back in the Gospels, I don't remember which one it was, forgive me, I should have looked that up, but back in the Gospels, Jesus says to them, uh, be careful that you do not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit because I, there are many, many, many sins I will forgive, but this one I will not. And Which is a very scary thing, and it makes people who watch Jesus forgive every other sin imaginable, and then Jesus says, but there's one sin I won't forgive. It makes us think, what? On earth could that possibly be? And then, of course, I get the question on a regular basis, how do I know if I have committed the unpardonable sin? The unforgivable, how do I know? What if I, what if I committed the unforgivable sin and now I'm going to hell and I don't know, and I don't know about it? Has anybody ever wondered about that? You should wonder about it. That's a scary thing to think about. Oh no, what if I've committed it? Well. I would say, first of all, if you had committed it, you wouldn't be worried about whether or not you had committed it. Does that make sense? <laughs> because the point is this. What Jesus is talking about is a continual rejection, continual purposeful rejection of the voice of the Holy Spirit where you know the Lord is speaking to you and you purposefully ignore what he's saying to you over and over and over and over again until the day arrives when you can no longer hear his voice. That's my understanding of the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this pattern in a human life where we continually ignore the promptings of the Spirit until we can no longer be prompted by the Spirit in any way. So 
that that's what I mean by if you had committed it, you probably wouldn't be worried about whether or not you committed it because um, you're not going to be, you know, it, that's the kind of person you are is not something that's going to be on your mind. You have so habitually formed yourself into not caring about whether or not you're with Jesus that you now no longer care. Does that make sense? That's my, and that is what consciences are seared means in this verse. That these are people that are doing wrong, telling lies, and they know they're telling lies, or they've know, they knew for a long time, and now they've begun to believe it. This is the danger of not speaking the truth, is that eventually you convince yourself. Eventually you get to the place where you believe the thing that you once thought was a lie. It happens. It's hard to think about that, but it does. The more we tell ourselves lies, the more apt we are to believe them over time. What do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, what is that? What what is that? That idea. That idea is a scary idea. Does it do anything to you? That's a good answer. <laughs> well, yeah. Agreed. I, I have said from the pulpit many times, if Jesus has not offended you lately, then you're not listening to him. <laughs> and I really think that's true. Because Jesus is constantly saying things to me that I'm like, hey! Like, alright Jesus, you're getting a little personal now. If Jesus hasn't offended you lately, and I've said this from the pulpit a couple times, and I've had people be like, Jesus would never offend me. And I want to kind of look at them and be like, have you met him? <laughs> Jesus is offensive. Jesus says, it's my way or the highway. Period. I am the truth. So if it doesn't agree with me, it's wrong. <laughs> That's offensive. It is. By its very nature, that statement. Our choice as Christians is to say, yes, Lord, I submit to you, or I'm no longer your follower. Those are our choices. And Jesus says things like, you can only come to the Father by me. That is an extremely offensive statement. Are you with me, y'all? Just gotta say, what's the last, what, how, do you mind telling us how Jesus offended you last night? You don't have to if you don't want to. I don't want you to feel on the spot. <laughs> well, this, someone came in, so I wouldn't have to 
Yes. Yes, I understand that feeling. I had it 30 minutes ago. I was praying through the liturgy that I pray every day. Part of the liturgy that I pray is I recite the Beatitudes. And without fail, one of the Beatitudes is going to be offensive to me on any given day, at least one. And because uh, I don't just say them, I have to inhabit them a bit and be, you know, but one of them is going to be going to make me angry. And this and today it was blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And the Holy Spirit said, brought somebody to mind and said, you have not forgiven them. And they don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve to be forgiven at all. The person that I have not forgiven does not deserve to be forgiven. They are not repentant. They know what they've done, and they're not unhappy about what they've done, and they do not deserve to be forgiven. But the Lord said to me, blessed are the merciful. And I said, shut up. It was offensive. That's often the one, right? Isn't it? Isn't that the big, that's what it's, Jesus is constantly, it's like when, I was rejoicing in the news that Osama bin Laden had been killed, and the Lord said to me, do you think I'm happy about this? And I was just like, ah. Osama bin Laden? What? Oh, Jesus, help us. Osama bin Laden was the one who orchestrated the 9-11 attacks. You're familiar with those, yes? SEAL Team 6 went in and took him out during the Obama administration. And our country, as, as one, rejoiced in his death. I don't think that the Lord did. Yeah. In fact, I could point you to multiple scriptures that would tell you the Lord did not rejoice in his death. So how dare I? In that moment, I was once again face to face with how my nationalism is an opponent to my Christianity. Mm. Yes? I kind of have obvious Sure. Yeah. And I was like, my mind always thinks like we don't like for all we know, I always go to this. Hitler could have said the sinner's prayer right before he died or something. Do you what do you think like do you think like the sinner's prayer is not enough? Yeah. Repentance is required. So then do you think like Do I think Hitler could have repented right before his death? Possibly. Sure. Well, Hitler's a good example. Right. Do I think Hitler could have repented before his death? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's possible. Highly unlikely, but possible. And that is what is required, is repentance. Because the truth is, sin is sin. (coughs) Repentance is the only thing required. But it requires true repentance. And the level to which you have, he must have had to double down on his absolute evil over and over and over and over again suggests to me that he is one of these whose consciences were seared. But I don't know that. The Lord is the only one who knows that. And there's no way for me until that day I will not know. Maybe the worst people in human history, Genghis Khan, you know, we don't know, could have repented at the end of their life and the Lord saved them, we don't know. And God would have been faithful and just to forgive them their sins. And we think, what? But that is exactly how we should think about our own sin. We should be in the same place, saying, God, I do not deserve forgiveness. That's the thing. Every time I come up face to face with someone that does not deserve forgiveness, the Lord reminds me, neither do you. Because I don't. I'm left with only one option, and that is to forgive. Because blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And Jesus, in several places and times, said, if you will not forgive them, the Father will not forgive you. Man. That's hardcore. Let's keep moving. These people forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What is going on? Okay. Paul is pointing specifically at people he knows about who are telling Christians they should not get married, nor should they eat certain foods. Now, Paul is, is dealing with several specific heresies at one time. Okay. There's people out there saying you should not get married. And then there's people out there saying that you should you know, uh, restrict yourself to a certain diet in order to follow Jesus. Paul is going, nope and nope. So what do we do with certain tribes of Christians who forbid marriage, not to everyone, but to certain people? For instance, the Catholic Church requires their clergy to be celibate. It's clearly unbiblical. Now there's nothing unbiblical about celibacy. Jesus said there would there would definitely be people who God had called and Paul does too that God has called some people to celibacy. I was having a conversation with a man that's back when I was on staff here at this church and they there's one person assigned for every week or at least is the way it used to work maybe it's different now but there was one used to work that there was one pastor called the pod or the pastor on duty that is assigned to receive calls after office hours and i received a call 
from a man who said, I just really need some prayer. And that's my favorite kind of pod call, to be honest with you. Because I'll, I'll call him back and pray with him. But it doesn't require me rushing to the hospital or, you know, I can stay in bed if I want to. You know, it's fine. <laughs> but this guy called, I just really need some prayer. So I called him and I'm talking to him. And he's pouring out his heart and he's just had a difficult life. And then he says, God's not answering my prayers. I said, well, I mean, what do you mean? He goes, I've been asking for a girlfriend for 15 years. And I was like, what? You've been praying for a girlfriend? And I just, without thinking, said, you know, God has called some of us to be celibate. His response was, why would you say that to me? That was his response. He was appalled at the possible thought that maybe God's not answering this prayer because he's not supposed to have a girlfriend. Um, so I wouldn't recommend that necessarily as an answer pastorally. But there are people, and I know some of, I think I know a few folks who they're not opposed to getting married, but it's not important to them either. And they're pursuing God's call in their lives. And that is more important to them than whether or not they end up with a spouse. And I think that's amazing. Anybody ever heard of Lillian Trasher? She was an Assembly of God woman many, like three generations ago. She was engaged to be married to the love of her life. And she had an encounter with Jesus where he said to her, I want you to drop everything. I want you to move to Egypt. And I want you to start a, uh, an orphanage in Egypt. And I don't want you to get married. <coughs> so she did. She broke up with her fiance through many tears raised money, moved to Egypt, and started an orphanage, which is still one of the largest ministries to poor children in Egypt all to this day, known all over the world because of what God has done through this woman's ministry. I don't remember the name of the orphanage, and I may be getting her last name wrong. I think it's Lillian Trasher, but I'm not, because I always thought that was a weird last name. It might be Thrasher, but anyway... Is treasure? That's her story. God called her to celibacy. And she didn't want to be celibate. But God called her to celibacy. And so she did what God told her to do. And that's entirely possible for all of us. But we shouldn't forbid marriage as a rule. Marriage was created by God. Are you with me? Right. And Paul says, when stuff like that comes up that has nothing to do with the gospel and we make it a gospel issue. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch an Assembly of God sacred cow. Are you ready? I like to do this. Are you ready for this? There is nothing in scripture that says that we should not drink alcohol. Nothing. 
Jesus drunk, drank alcohol. Jesus created a thousand bottles of wine. And yes, there was alcohol in them at the wedding at Cana. Paul, in this letter, tells Timothy, have a little wine for your stomach. This is not in the scripture. Now, what is in the scripture is we are, you know, we're told to avoid drunkenness. We're told to avoid being drunkards. In other words, being alcoholics. Yes, that's forbidden. But just the imbibing of alcohol is not forbidden. And in the Assemblies of God, as an Assembly of God pastor, I am forbidden from imbibing alcohol. And because of that, I do not. I signed on the dotted line. But I do not require that of anyone else. Now here at First Assembly, at least in days gone by, which this may not be true anymore, but here at First Assembly, you are asked to forego alcohol while you are on the board, which has led some people in this church to take their names out of the running for the board because they like a glass of wine with their dinner. I think that's stupid. Of them, not of this church. If this church is holding that stance, fine. If you want to be involved in the leadership of this church, you should be ready and willing to make reasonable sacrifices in order to be involved in the leadership of this church. I don't think that spending a couple years not drinking is going to hurt anyone. It's just my opinion. And I think if, honestly, if it's that important to you that you will forego the opportunity to be involved in the leadership of your church, you need to ask yourself why alcohol is so important to you. I do not drink alcohol. I don't consider it a loss of any proportion in my life. It's not important to me. I don't care. I'm not interested in drinking alcohol. Probably even if that were lifted today, I would likely not become a person who regularly drinks alcohol. It's just never been a part of my life. But it's not something the Bible forbids. And so I won't preach against it from the pulpit. I will talk about the dangers of addiction all day long. But that goes way beyond alcohol. I had to have a conversation with my son about TikTok the other day. I was like, seriously, kid, every time I see you, you're staring at TikTok every time. It's like, go look in your phone at how much time you spend on that app. I want you to do it right now. He didn't do it, but that's okay. <laughs> He's almost 20. I'm not at the place where I can really, you know, but I just wanted to bring it into his awareness. I think you're spending too much time on TikTok. Just, just saying. I think you should think about that. It's not good for your soul. Can I just say this? TikTok in general is bad for you. It shortens your attention span. The kinds of things that get offered for you to view on TikTok get progressively dirtier and dirtier. I don't know if all of y'all are on TikTok or not, but I was on it for five minutes, okay? Like just, a, a, I mean, more like a month, really. Because I just, I wanted to see if we should have a TikTok for the church. I, I did not have the time to be creating videos for the church <laughs> on a regular basis. So it's still out there, but I don't remember the last time we posted on it. But, um, and the amount of time it sucked away from my life 
And not only that, but I just noticed that like the videos that were getting like suggested to me were getting dirtier and dirtier, more and more sexual, more and more, you know, things that you know didn't start out that way. But then like, and even if I was like, I don't want to see, I don't know how you do that. But like when you say, I don't want to see videos like this or whatever, it didn't make a difference. They kept sending me stuff like that all the time. And I was like, I have got to get rid of this app. So I did and I don't have it anymore. But I don't want to sound like some old fogey that's just like anti-social media because I'm not. But that is toxic. It should be called TikToxic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that in a sermon. I just came up with that right now. That's going, that's going in the sermon. Tell you. <laughs> but I wish I was a youth pastor right now. I would do a whole sermon series called TikToxic. Okay. Somebody, somebody has already said that at some point, I'm sure, but I've never heard it. It's too easy. Okay. We, we shouldn't be taking things that God himself has not forbidden and making them salvation issues. That's the point of that verse. Okay. Verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, or it is made holy by the... For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul's pointing directly at the Judaizers and the Gnostics on this one. He's like, hey guys, y'all okay? All right. I didn't see you jump at all. But. Okay, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. So he's talking about all this stuff that he's just, that, that he's in the midst of having the conversation. Timothy, this is the kind of stuff you need to be saying to your church. Both before and after, I think. I think this is, he's just pausing midway. So are you getting this? This is good stuff, Tim. Let's continue. <laughs> um, Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. I was reading a rather controversial theologian yesterday. Flynn, you, you mean, do you know George MacDonald at all? Are you aware of his work? George MacDonald was, he's a Scottish theologian from 150-ish years ago. He, uh, he was a universalist, so, I, you know, but, but C.S. Lewis, he deeply, he had a lot of really good things to say, too, but he was, he was, he was deeply inf influential in the thought of Lewis, of C.S. Lewis. And, uh, and, um, I've heard so many people lately mention him that I decided I really probably need to read some of his stuff. So I was reading um, some of, uh, he has a book called Unspoken Sermons, and I was reading from there. And he said something along these lines, which I thought was really, really good. He said, he said, too often, based on, I'm very much paraphrasing, but the idea is too often we make Jesus into a theory rather than a person. 
instead of being obedient to our master Jesus, we go off and start cooking up theologies about why he told us what he told us, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we leave off obedience. He says, not that theology is a bad thing, but it has to follow from obedience because you cannot understand Christ until you have first obeyed him. I thought that was a really good point. And that's really what Paul is trying to say here. All of the conjecture, all of the theology, all of the thoughts, all of the, the ideas about truth, etc., all of that's fine if you're training yourself for godliness. But don't waste your time. If you're not training yourself for godliness, don't waste your time in all of that other stuff. Now, Paul is probably specifically pointing at stuff having to do with the Nephilim, etc., which is fascinating to me. I love that stuff. But because, and, and it appears that the church at Ephesus had a lot, was doing a lot of thinking around that stuff. Um, but uh, also, you know, which led them into the Gnostic thing, which was a big deal in Ephesus, but that's, we won't talk too much about that. The idea here is, if you're not obeying Christ, training yourself for godliness, and this is probably where we're going to land probably the rest of this time. What does it look like to train yourself for godliness. What does it look like to train yourself for godliness? What kind of activities would you partake in to, part, to train yourself for godliness? That's a great one, absolutely. Fasting is one of the ways we train ourselves for godliness. Other ideas? Absolutely. We call that devotional Bible study. It's kind of what we're doing right now. <laughs> what else? Sure, find a mentor. Absolutely. Find a mentor. That's a great one. Others? Hey, we're just we're just scratching the surface right now. How do you train yourself for godliness? Yeah, we call that contemplative prayer. Yeah. Thought, prayer, reflection. Anything else? What do you do if you want to train yourself to be a good basketball player? Practice. Yeah, practice. This looks like what? Consistent, 
Consistency. Yeah, consistency. Yeah. But in what? What do you do, though? What do you actually do with your body? Exercise, shoot baskets, etc. Right? Right. You play, you work out, you do those kinds of things. How do you train yourself for godliness? Here's a clue. Not much different. Sure, that's a great one. Yes, exercise your spiritual gifts. Becoming intentional about practicing your faith. If your faith lives up here and only up here, it's not real. James talks to us about that. He says, if you have faith but no works, your faith is dead. What good is it to anyone? Right? Yeah, he was serious about that. It can't just live up here or in here. It's got to come out. You need to embody your faith. You need to practice your faith. So what are some other things? Things Jesus taught us to do that maybe we should do that are going to train us for godliness. How about generosity? Giving to the poor, giving to one another, living open-handedly with the resource that God's put into your life. Forgiving people, that's a great one. Absolutely. What else? Yes. Yes. You should never. Studying the Bible on your own is one thing, but having a conversation is even more important. Even more important. Because we, we don't interpret the Bible as an individual. We interpret the Bible as a community. I want a t-shirt for that one. <laughs> I really do. Because I want to throw it to lots of folks. Hey, watching three YouTube videos and, having, and sitting down with your Bible does not an interpreter of Scripture make. You with me? You don't get to sit alone with your, uh, with your social media and call yourself a theologian. No, we interpret the Bible as a community. Bad things happen when you do it by yourself. Bad things happen. Any other ideas? So next question. What are you personally doing to train yourself for godliness? <laughs> yeah. You are a part of Master's Commission. That's what you're supposed to be doing here. Is training yourself for godliness. That's the whole point of this place and this thing. Is engaging in intentional discipleship. That is what's supposed to be happening here. If your faith just lives in your head or in your heart and never comes out into your hands and your toes, you are not a follower of Jesus. 
period. So are you training yourself for godliness? That's the big question. And this is what I want to ask of every church, especially in the United States. Because we're not good at training our people for godliness. We're not good at encouraging our people to train themselves for godliness. We're not good at making our faith embodied, getting it out of our heads and into our bodies. We're bad at that. You want to know why we're bad at that? Because we're Western Enlightenment modernist thinkers. That's why we're bad at that. We are all think of ourselves as brains on sticks. We don't think of our bodies as a part of who we are. We think of them as the thing that carries our brain around. That is not a biblical understanding of the human person. Which is why Jesus didn't give us a handbook, he gave us a meal. This is my flesh, this is my blood. He wants your Christianity firmly located in your body and in your head and in your heart but in your body as well <coughs> you look like you have a question sir um, no I'm just about to eat my banana eat your banana this is his <laughs> flesh <laughs> when I first started listening when I first started thinking about this this understanding and reading people and talking to people about this it was very weird to hear people talk about what was happening in their bodies. It made me uncomfortable. It was odd for me to hear people say stuff about experiences they were having in their bodies in relationship with, their, with the gospel. It was very strange for me. Especially because I had just spent some time in a very, very intellectual-centric wing of the body of Christ. It was all about learning and all about knowledge and all about thought. And I firmly believed that I understood everything. I no longer believe that. I like mystery. Mystery is great. Mystery is what's keep, what keeps me excited, keeps me interesting. I like things that are bigger than my brain. I can't put it into words, but I can feel it. Oh, that's a scary thing for a theologian. Theologian and Bible study people are like, oh, don't talk about feelings. Feelings are against the rules. Problem Jesus' first and second greatest commandments were about feelings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Okay, so training yourself for, for, for righteousness. Okay? Requires intentionality. You cannot do it on accident. Can you lift weights on accident? Yeah. Really? No. Can you, can you run on a treadmill on accident? At some point, you're making a decision, I'm going to train my body, right? I mean, at some point, that's a decision that you're making. You have to make that choice. 
And it's the same way with godliness. How are we going to choose to engage in training ourselves for godliness? What does that look like? And it can't be stuff we just do sporadically. It has to be regular. It has to be repetitive. Which is why it's really okay for you to eat your banana. Okay. (laughs) Which is why I started praying a liturgy, the same prayers every single day. Now, I also pray stuff that's not in the liturgy. There's, There's two places in my liturgy where it's now say what now pray, you know, pray whatever you want to pray here. Actually, there's three because there's also a place where I just pray in tongues for five or ten minutes. This is why I began to pray prayers that were not my own because I chose prayers that the church has for hundreds of years pointed at and said, this is a prayer that is formational. It will help you to become more like Jesus. That's what we don't necessarily understand about prayer. Prayer is, now, the primary purpose of prayer. Are you ready for this? Everybody pay attention to what I'm just about to say right now because I don't think you believe it. I definitely didn't. The primary purpose of prayer is to make you who God wants you to become. It's formational. The primary purpose of prayer is not convincing God to do the stuff you want him to do. I think that's how we usually think about prayer. The the biggest reason we pray is we have these things that we are not capable of doing and we ask God to do them for us. Are you with me? How many of you, it's like, yes, that's, isn't that why we pray? That is part of why we pray. We do things like, say, give us this day our daily bread. We do things like, you know, we pray for things and we should. But that's not the primary reason that we pray. The primary reason, the most important reason and the most effectual uh, thing that prayer does is it forms us. It changes who we are. It changes who we are as we pray good prayers and as we hear from the voice of the Spirit who is transforming us on the inside. You all with me right now? If you go and look at the prayers the Apostle Paul prays for the churches in the New Testament, You won't find him asking for them to meet their budget for this year or to have enough money to build that extension on the sanctuary. He doesn't ask for those kinds of things. He asks God to change who they are. These are the kinds of prayers we need to be praying as well. Part of training for righteousness is trusting ourselves and trusting ourselves to a wise liturgy. I would love, and I have in the past, brought my liturgy to this group. I would love to do so again at some point in the future. But I first want you to have this in your head that one of the things that God has called you to do as individuals is to be trained in godliness. It's far more important 
that you live out godliness than it is that you understand godliness. Obedience and being formed into the image of Christ is more important than right theology. I was in prayer a couple years ago, two or three years ago. And uh, there's this one particular, well, uh, so I had this encounter with Jesus. And, uh, and in this picture in my mind, I saw a mirror And I was standing in front of it and Jesus was standing behind me. Okay. And I looked in the mirror and I said to Jesus, will you show me the one thing in my life that is keeping me away from you? keeping me from seeing you clearly. And in this picture, Jesus breathed on this mirror so it was all foggy. And he reached around me and he wrote the word with his finger in the mirror. He wrote the word truth. I was utterly confused. I literally wiped the mirror off and said, try again. Because I, I did not understand it at all. But that is what stuck with me. Truth. The one thing that is keeping you from seeing me clearly is truth. And I was like, I don't understand that. That makes no sense. How is truth keeping me from seeing Jesus? It took me three days of praying about this before the Holy Spirit helped me understand And this is what he said to me. You are so busy pursuing an understanding of the idea of me. The truth about me, quote unquote, that you can't see me. You have made theology an idol. And you worship that rather than me. Hey, Brian. That hurt me to the core. Because I thought my pursuit of theology was my pursuit of God. I was wrong. I was wrong. My pursuit of theology was my pursuit of... Turns out... My own glory... Because I wanted to be able to hold my ability to understand God over other people's heads. I've studied more than you. I've read more than you. I understand more than you. 
I didn't see that in myself at all. I didn't understand that that was what was going on, but it was. And Jesus said, you so become a pursuer of theological truth, quote unquote, that you can't see me in the mirror. I'm right here. it was from that point that I began to learn how to train myself for godliness because I would rather be a follower of Jesus than a scholar of Jesus. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can do both at the same time. In fact, I think you need to be somewhat of a scholar of Jesus in order to be a follower. But it is possible to be only a scholar and not a and that was the direction I was headed, and Jesus was not okay with that. Because he wants more than just my brain. I'm envious of you guys, because you are in an environment where you get to spend most of your time training yourself for godliness. At least, that's what this is supposed to be. And here's the big question. Are you more patient than you were six months ago? Are you more kind? Are you more humble? Do you envy less? Love does not envy. Jesus does not envy. Are you less brutal and mean? <laughs> Do you think differently about relationship with each other and with the world? That's called discipleship. When you're being transformed into the image of Jesus, that's called discipleship. And that only comes from intentional decision to train for godliness. A choice to become more like Jesus. The question isn't whether or not you're going to fast, but why? Why are you going to fast? Because they told you to. Why are you asking? Yes. I love that. That's great. Prioritizing your pursuit of the Lord over other things that you desire. That's awesome. That's training for godliness. And that's what fasting is really about. Good job. I used to fast because I thought that the prayers that I said while I was fasting were more likely to get answered. I'm not kidding. 
it's a dumb thought, right? It's a stupid thought, but that was really, and I never would have said it that way. Like I never would have been like, well, I'm going to fast so that God has to do what I ask him to do. <laughs> but that is what I was thinking. I thought it was some kind of exchange with the Lord. Like, I'll, I will not eat food if you will do what I ask you to do. That's bullcrap. No. No, it doesn't. But I, I thought that it did. Because when I had been praying about something for a while and it didn't happen, people would be like, have you fasted about this? Right. And I'd be like, no. Ah, oh, this is... But that's because I believed that the primary purpose of prayer was getting God to do what I wanted him to do. It's not. That's it for today, y'all. We made it through like six verses. Yeah. I mean, you got to be excited about that. <laughs> you said verse six, and I'm like, what? Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Anybody have any thoughts, questions? Prayer requests. Oh, yeah. I have a prayer request. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened, but like my lower back is just like really hurting. So. Yeah. All I'm right. Stand up. up. Let's gather round. What? Oh, shoveling. Shoveling. I just pick up a lot of like heavy stuff at work. Oh yeah. Anybody else not feeling well in some way or another? <laughs> I think that one's going to be fixed. We're going to watch a miraculous healing right now. It'll be a little painful at first. But then. <laughs> it's, it's done. It's not, not All right. Father, we thank you that you are a healer. And Jesus... You are the same one who walked down the streets of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, healing everyone you encountered. So, Lord, I just pray, Lord, for this lower back to be healed. And we say, in the name of Jesus, come into alignment. In the name of Jesus, be made whole. All the soreness would be removed, and that the vertebrae would be put to where they belong. The muscles would be relieved of damage and soreness. There would be no lasting consequences of whatever caused this. I thank you, Jesus, that you, by the stripes on your back, you healed us. We receive that healing right now in the name of Jesus. <laughs> so let's test that. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Something else.